Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. Yes, there's a bit of a delay. This is episode 39 for the month of, I don't know, February slash March. Sorry for the delay and I won't bore you the reasons for it. Let's just go on with the podcast. Many times we're asked to do a colonoscopy in a patient with a history of diverticulitis. Mainly it's done to make sure there is no cancer. If the patient had a colonoscopy before, say last year, most of the time there's probably no need to repeat it. The answer is more obvious if the patient never had a colonoscopy. So how often do you find cancer on colonoscopies in patients who recently had diverticulitis? This study in GIE looked at prevalence of CRC and advanced adenoma in such patients. They looked at almost a thousand patients with acute diverticulitis, half of whom had a colonoscopy within two years of the diagnosis of diverticulitis. And what do you think the number of cases that they have found of colon cancer? I was a bit shocked at how high it actually was. It was 13 out of 474 patients ended up having colon cancer. And about 4% of these patients actually had an advanced adenoma found too. So overall, about 8% of patients ended up having colonoscopy that was totally worth their time. That's a lot of people. Another interesting tidbit is that 9 out of the 13 cases, or 69%, the diverticulitis was diagnosed in the same location as the tumor. It also didn't matter much if you had complicated or uncomplicated diverticulitis, rates of cancer were about the same. It is interesting to note that a third of patients with diverticulitis in this study had a colonoscopy before, but it's unclear, at least to me, if the 13 cancers found had a colonoscopy before or not. Also, how long ago was the last colonoscopy? Does it matter here? unclear. So I guess our practice and actually guidelines of doing colonoscopy, unless a recent one was done for history of diverticulitis is totally justified. When is pancreatic mass not pancreatic cancer? Differential for pancreatic masses is not very large. If it isn't cancer, it usually is something we don't really see every day, like autoimmune pancreatitis or something like that. How about infectious causes? Can you think of one? Well, how about pancreatic tuberculosis? It actually can present as a pancreatic head mass, and this next paper is a review of pancreatic tuberculosis cases. So let's learn a little bit about that, shall we? So typical patients who you should think about pancreatic TB would be men in their 50s and mostly in or from Asia, basically living in places with high rates of tuberculosis infection, or traveling from places with high rates of tuberculosis infection, but not always as nearly half the cases were described in New Zealand, North America, and Europe. Some risk factors for this include HIV infection, which was one of the top ones to keep in mind. Diabetes was another risk factor. In terms of symptoms, most common was abdominal pain, followed by fever, weight loss, and jaundice. And 80% of pancreatic tuberculosis manifested themselves as pancreatic mass, given even more credence to the reputation TB has as a great mimicker. It used to be syphilis, but I think TB has taken the crown many decades ago. An interesting quote from the discussion, as less than 10% of patients in our review were previously diagnosed with TB of any other organ at the time of diagnosis, the diagnostic trap is complete. What makes this trap even worse is that parapancreatic lymph nodes are often enlarged and makes everyone believe even more that this is pancreatic cancer. Thankfully, unlike pancreatic cancer, most cases of pancreatic TB are not deadly. So, one more thing for you to keep in mind for a differential diagnosis of pancreatic head mass. So, this next one is a big can of worms, or as somebody on 
Twitter said a can of polyps. The multi-society task force, basically the three United States gastroenterology societies, released their recommendations for post-polypectomy colonoscopy. How long do you wait if you have one or two or three adenomas? How about more complex polyps? Now remember how screening recommendations from American College of Physicians have gotten much better, simplifying recommendations for colon cancer screening to a great degree. Did the GI societies follow suit? Not exactly. I kind of have mixed feelings about the actual outcomes of this. And so first I'll just read out the key recommendations. And before that, the recommendations assume adequate bowel preparation and performance of high-quality baseline colonoscopy by an endoscopist with an adenoma detection rate above recommended thresholds. So we're not talking about poor prep here or a fellow doing a case or something like that. So let's read the key recommendations. If you find one or two adenomas less than a centimeter, the new interval is 7 to 10 years. If you find three or four tubular adenomas that are small, the new interval is not three years, but three to five years. How about five to 10 adenomas? These people should come back in three years solid. Patients with over 10 adenomas on a single exam, you come back in a year. And then there's a separate table for sessile polyps. So if you have one or two sessile serrated polyps, less than 10 millimeters, you come back in five to 10 years. Patients with hyperplastic polyps that are big, meaning more than a centimeter, three to five years. And those with advanced adenomas or SSPs over 10 millimeters, dysplastic SSPs or traditional serrated adenomas, you come back in three years, assuming the whole polyp was removed at once. And if you remove a polyp with piecemeal resection and the polyp is over 20 millimeters, you bring them back in six months. So once again, there's a separate table for sessile serrated polyps, so don't miss that either. What do I have to say about this whole thing? Well, this is all very confusing, I think. I never felt that stating 5 to 10 years, meaning giving a range, was a good idea. And you would think that this would result in variation in practice, but practically speaking, everybody just goes for the lower number in the interval, meaning if it's 5 to 10 years, everybody puts down 5 years. Sometimes for a tiny 3mm tubular adenoma, patients come back in 5 years, and you feel like this was a bit of an overkill. So I do agree that this is an advancement, meaning that moving the interval to 7 to 10 years is a step forward. It's just a very, very messy thing to do to change the interval so much and giving ranges. Because now we have one year, three year, five year, seven years, and 10 year intervals. And don't forget those docs who will, for some reason, decide to say eight years. Say bowel prep wasn't bad, but wasn't perfect. Not the right thing to do, by the way, but hey, I'm sure this will happen. I'm sure the reason for these very strange intervals and ranges is a compromise between different society and different folks on the committees. And some people know the evidence, and these will be the people actually writing the darn guidelines. And I hope that the next series of guidelines, when they come out, probably in another eight years, is better and more precise with simplified intervals. So just a summary of my thoughts on these guidelines, that these are better than what we had, but they're not perfect. Now that we're comfortable using Watts brushes to look for Barrett's dysplasia, what do you folks do when your pathologist calls and says, oh, well, the biopsies are back with indefinite for dysplasia, or if that's what your Watts report says? Putting aside the controversy as to whether you should be doing Watts at all, let's focus on what to do with indefinite dysplasia. I actually have several patients like this recently, so I'm happy that GIE published this meta-analysis called Risk of Progression of Barrett's Esophagus Indefinite for Dysplasia, and it came out in January issue. 
Let's break down this paper and see what it is about. This was a meta-analysis of eight studies reporting incidence of high-rate dysplasia or esophageal cancer or indefinite dysplasia when looking at Barrett's esophagus. So they pooled all the numbers together and determined that the pooled incidence of esophageal cancer arising in patients with Barrett's indefinite dysplasia was pretty much the same as those with Barrett's low-grade dysplasia. So what this means is that they want us to treat patients with indefinite dysplasia as if they have low-grade dysplasia. They even go further, and this is what they say. There might be a role for endoscopic therapy in Barrett's indeterminate dysplasia, similar to low-grade dysplasia, if the results are confirmed in a large prospective studies. I like the end of that sentence much more than the beginning. Currently, the ACG guidelines tell us the following. For patients with indefinite dysplasia, a repeat endoscopy after optimization of acid-suppressive medications for 3-6 to six months should be performed. If the indefinite for dysplasia reading is confirmed on this examination, a surveillance interval of 12 months is recommended. Basically, if the pathologist says indefinite once, you do it again, and if it's back again, you repeat in a year. Another point to note is that the rate of progression reported in this study was 11.4 from indefinite dysplasia to low-grade dysplasia or worse, but several points need to be made here. One, this is not the greatest meta-analysis. It really bunched a bunch of apples and oranges together. For one thing, the rate of esophageal cancer in studies from Europe, where the rates are nine times higher than the rates in the United States, were put together with the U.S. population studies. Also, I'm sure the rate didn't stay the same over time, so rates of older studies may be vastly different than the rates now. So will this study change anything that I do? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think the ACG guidelines stay, meaning if you find indefinite dysplasia, you maximize PPI therapy, repeat in three to six months, and if it's still there, you go back and look in a year. My worry is that a lot of people with indefinite dysplasia will now be referred for ablation, and then you get a lot of angry phone calls from advanced folks who do ablation, asking like, what exactly am I ablating here? Yet another clinical practice update from AGA this time on a very scary topic. So I like it. And you really need to know what you're doing when these patients present. I'm talking about management of pancreatic necrosis. This stuff can be really deadly. So let us review the best practice advice on management of pancreatic necrosis. One, make sure that you have the right people involved. A multidisciplinary approach is best in these cases. Bring a good surgeon, interventional radiologist, and if needed, a critical care person into the mix. Two, don't throw antibiotics on pancreatic necrosis unless you're absolutely sure there is an infection going on. Three, if you have to use antibiotics, use the right ones. Use stuff that actually gets into the area of necrosis, carbapenems, quinolones, metronidazole. You don't need to cover for fungi usually. Four, always try oral nutrition first if you can. If not, try NG tube feeding or NJ tube and feed as soon as possible. Five, if the necrosis is infected, try to drain it if it's drainable. 6. Do not go for debridement of pancreatic necrosis too early, basically not in the first two weeks. 7. In patients with WAN, walled-off necrosis, draining it endoscopically or percutaneous drainage, either one is fine. Whatever you've got available on hand, use it, meaning that if you have an interventional endoscopist who can put in a drain, do that that way, or ask your surgeon or IR person to put in a percutaneous drain. 
probably endoscopic is better because then you don't run the risk of uh, fistula forming to the skin. Eight, if the necrosis is widespread and really, really bad, you can always do both perk and endoscopic drainage to kind of increase the chances of the thing actually draining. Nine, self-expanding metal stents are better than plastic stents for endoscopic drainage. 10. Endoscopic necrosectomy should be reserved for special cases and done by people who do this for a living. So don't try this at home. 11. If you're going to do surgery, minimally invasive is preferred. 12. There are many ways to do surgery, so pick the one that works for the given patient. This is when surgical expertise really shines. 13. Open debridement is not off the table. So keep this in your armamentarium, well, not the endoscopist. Your friendly neighborhood surgeon should be doing this part. 14. What happens if the tail of the pancreas is hanging on by a thread, meaning it's no longer connected to the main body? You can consider taking it out. 15. You should try to develop an algorithm of how you're going to do this. Step-up approach, perk or endoscopic drainage, followed by endoscopic necrosectomy, followed by surgical debridement, as an example. And if you have the resources, probably come up with an algorithm of who you call when. That way your multidisciplinary approach is all set up. So this is a very complex subject overall. Patients can be sitting there without any symptoms with a giant necrotic mass in their belly or crump before your very eyes with a tiny focus of infected necrosis. It's best to know this stuff beforehand. Keep up with it so you know exactly what to do when this scenario happens. There are many useful algorithms in the paper. My overall takeaways are as follows. Feed these patients early. Don't just throw antibiotics unless there's a good reason. And call a surgeon or IR or your advanced endoscopist as soon as possible to help you out. No episode of GI Pearls is complete without me ranting about the microbiome. Many of the human studies often quote very compelling studies done in mice on FMT transplant or some sort of microbiome manipulation. This whole idea that changes in the microbiome or this dysbiosis is actually the cause of the disease rather than the consequence of it, or a bystander still not completely resolved. Part of the problem, as discussed previously, is the fact that scientific approach has been completely backwards, where people try to fix microbiome, sometimes not even checking if whatever intervention they tried actually changed the microbiome or not, rather than having a good hypothesis up front. Cell published a cool review titled Establishing or Exaggerating Causality for the Gut Microbiome. It should be a required reading for anyone doing research in general, and specifically in those doing microbiome research, which is why I am here spreading the word about it. Let's quickly go over the main points. Basically, most common way to study microbiota in mice is to take germ-free mice, give them human microbiota of people with some medical conditions versus controls, and then do some fancy measurements or something like that to start making inferences based on those. Well, the authors of the review say that making any causal claims from such analyses is implausible, and it, these type of studies are wrought with insufficient rigor or experimental design problems, bad statistical analysis, and just downright bias. I mean, this type of mouse model seems to always work, at least in the review of the 38 studies that they looked at. It worked in all but two of the studies. In those two studies where it didn't work, meaning they didn't get the phenotype they expected, the authors just explained it away somehow. Bottom line, this paper is not just criticism of what's out there. They also give you helpful suggestions on how to improve things going forward. So if you do microbiome research of any kind, please, I implore you, read this thing. 
I'm happy to email you a copy if you don't have access to it. Let me know. Just send an email to info at gipearls.com. Moving on to something interesting again. Sometimes I talk about things I don't really see that often myself, mainly to make sure that I know the topic and also to make sure that you guys out there, listeners, know it too. Let's talk about neutropenic enterocolitis. A nice review of clinical features and outcomes of neutropenic enterocolitis was published in Diseases of Colon and Rectum by the folks out of MD Anderson. I'm sure they see a lot of this stuff. Chemotherapy can often get your neutrophils below 1,000 in solid tumor patients, and it often happens in the treatment of hematologic malignancies as well when your bone marrow is toast. This neutropenia can basically lead you to not be able to fight off gut pathogens effectively, leading to mucositis, translocation of gut pathogens, leading to what is known as neutropenic enterocolitis. Another word for it is tiflitis. What the heck is the word tiflitis anyway? Well, it comes from the Greek tuflos, meaning blind, or tuflon, meaning cecum, or blind gut. Itis, well, it is an itis, as in colitis, diverticulitis, appendicitis, you know, itis, or disease. Apparently, the word tiflitis was very popular in 1800s for some reason. Once you develop neutropenia, you can get symptoms of enterocolitis or tiflitis within two days of developing neutropenia. That's pretty fast. It can last up to two weeks, even with therapy which is typically with antibiotics and GMCSF. So how do you make diagnosis of it? Well, you exclude other causes the best you can. You get a CT scan. You see wall thickening of the colon. You see luminal distension. But this, of course, can mimic infections like CMV or even mucormycosis. Would you scope these patients? Well, maybe. The people who published this paper also published a little review of safety of endoscopy in neutropenic patients that we discussed in episode 33 of this podcast, so go back to listen to that if you like. Main takeaway there was that it's probably safe as long as you have antibiotics on board and as long as the ANC is not too terrible, meaning as close to a thousand as you can get it. And what was more significant was the patient's performance status, even more important than the absolute neutrophil count how well these patients are doing overall. So make sure if you're going to go endoscopy route, you do it in the right patient, the right way, and talk to oncology to make sure that it's really going to make a huge difference for the patient in terms of outcomes. Speaking of outcomes, what kind of complications should you prepare for in patients with enterocolitis like this? Sepsis, 11%. And 2% of patients develop perforation, by the way. Some formed abscesses. Pneumatosis intestinalis is probably the most famous one because of how grotesque it can look on imaging. And if you decide to scope once again, what do you see on endoscopy? Patients with ulcerative inflammation on endoscopy have a longer median duration of NEC symptoms compared to those without ulcers that were seen. And those patients without ulcers had a lower ANC and were more likely to have abdominal pain. So if you don't see ulcers, those patients require antibiotics more than the patients with ulcers. How do you explain that? Well, it's interesting. If you're able to make ulcers, it probably means that your immune system here is still doing something. It's not just laying dormant, ignoring an impeding infection. So ulcers are a good thing, actually. And if ANC is very low, your diagnosis is actually easier to make based on clinical presentation. In those patients with ANC that is higher, closer to 1,000, that's where you have a diagnostic dilemma on your hands more often. By the way, only a minority of patients have profound diarrhea. Many do have diarrhea, it's just usually not very severe. I think the biggest takeaway for me was the ulcer thing, which I think I actually remember when I was an intern on the oncology floor. 
So if you have ulcers on endoscopy, it's a good thing. And if you don't, it's probably worse. Anyway, thanks to the folks from MD Anderson for putting this neutropenic enterocolitis study together. Very interesting stuff. Say your patient has an IPMN that you found in the pancreas, and it turns out that it's a branch duct IPMN. You're suddenly less worried. We know that these are not as dangerous as the main duct cysts, but how less dangerous are these? This next study out of Tokyo, Japan, looked at what happened with about 1,400 patients who were diagnosed with side branch IPMNs on imaging. Out of these 1,400 patients, over a six-year follow-up period, 68 patients were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, or about 0.7%. Half of these were IPMN-derived cancers, and half were pancreatic adenocarcinomas, by the way. And in the total population, after five years, the risk was basically tenfold higher than the age-matched general population in Japan. Now that's a lot of people who end up getting cancer. And many of these would have stopped surveillance because after three, four, even five years of stable imaging, some folks may relax and say, oh, let's not worry about this anymore. But apparently the risk persists even after five years. AGA, by the way, recommends against surveillance after five years of stable imaging. There is also a thought that the tumors derived from branch duct IPMNs may be biologically different from the main duct IPMNs. Not sure how much I truly believe in this, but it may be true. One big downside of this study was that the size of the IPMNs reported in the study were typically larger than what is incidentally discovered on imaging typically, and more specifically what most docs recommend in terms of stopping surveillance. But based on the results of this study, it's hard to ignore and think that the risk is not there. So I guess we will need to still use our clinical judgment, and for patients on a younger side with larger side branch IPMNs, Maybe stopping after five years is not the best idea. Speaking of not the greatest ideas, remember on the last episode we discussed that maybe treating H. pylori in everyone is not the greatest idea, or rather maybe testing everyone for H. pylori is not the greatest idea. Here is a paper that kind of supports those conclusions. The paper is published in CGH for the month of February, and it's titled Increased Incidence and Mortality of Gastric Cancer in Immigrant Populations from High to Low Regions of Incidence. And this is a meta-analysis looking at all the data available of immigrants and what happens to the incidence of gastric cancer once they move. They looked at 38 cohort studies from different regions and found that the risk of gastric cancer is consistently higher among immigrants who emigrate from countries of high gastric cancer incidence. What is interesting is that elevated risk was retained in second-generation immigrants, though it was slightly lower compared to the first-generation immigrants. How does this affect overall risk of cancer in the U.S.? I think for third, fourth, or, I don't know, tenth-generation Americans, the risk is very low. But remember that the United States has over 40 million foreign-born individuals from all over the world, and maybe, I don't know, a third of them are from higher-incident gastric cancer regions. Now think about it, what does that do to overall risk of gastric cancer in the United States? And do you really think that most studies really go with a fine tooth comb and really separate the data based on immigration status? Or how about second generation immigrants? I don't think so. And I think what this tells us is that if an individual is foreign born or his parents are from another country, their risk is greater than if their grandparents came here. So what I'm saying is that context is important when it comes to risk stratification which is why what we discussed in the last episode about testing everyone for H. pylori with hopes of avoiding gastric cancer 
might not be the greatest idea. Now, why was I talking about H. pylori so much, or gastric cancer again? Well, AGA has just released the latest guidelines on gastric intestinal metaplasia. And I'll tell you, lots of weird, but also lots of good stuff in this guideline. Here are their recommendations. There are very few of them. But first, how about a preamble? Remember, this is for America only, based on already discussed risk factors. So one, if you happen to find gastric intestinal metaplasia, make sure you test for H. pylori and treat it if you find it. Two, for patients with gastric intestinal metaplasia, don't subject them to routine surveillance. This is conditional recommendation, by the way. And then there's a statement basically saying, if your parents really, really beg you to look for cancer, then say, oh, okay, and you can do surveillance. And then comes trouble. High-risk patients would have incomplete versus complete metaplasia. What the heck does that mean, you ask? Well, there's some low-quality evidence showing that if you have incomplete metaplasia, this raises your risk a bit compared to complete metaplasia. And your local pathologist will absolutely hate you if you start calling them and harassing them to call it one or the other, but I'll let you deal with that yourself. That's what the AGA thinks we should do in terms of risk stratification. And then comes the final statement. Three, in patients with gastric intestinal metaplasia, the AGA suggests against routine repeat short interval endoscopy with biopsies for the purpose of risk stratification. There is a caveat here for a statement with conditional strength and very low quality of evidence. You can repeat it in a year if, if your patient is very concerned and they're an immigrant from a part of the world with high risk of gastric cancer, or they have a first degree relative with gastric cancer. So overall, this is great. AGA basically says that for incidentally discovered gastric intestinal metaplasia, do as little as possible because the benefits are small, if any. Unfortunately, we live in a do-as-much-as-possible world, and I feel that there will be a push on pathologists to give us an answer regarding complete versus incomplete metaplasia. I wonder how that will play out. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast. Despite all the delays, I did release this episode 39 for the month of February slash March slash April. Due to COVID-19, I have a lot less time to do this right now, and hopefully we'll get back on track in a few months. So please send me words of encouragement, papers to review, or any advice or any other comments to info at gipearls.com or on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. Thanks again. Bye-bye.